If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Law of Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Graham. In today's episode, we have a special guest who shares the importance of financial literacy and financial empowerment. Now, if you enjoy the Law of Investor Podcast, I want to ask you to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate the podcast. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Today, we have a very special guest on the podcast today. Um, I will let him do the honors of introducing himself. My name is Rakim Sabri. I'm a two-time author, TEDx speaker, nonprofit co-founder. All right, man. So that's a lot of amazing stuff that you're doing there. So uh, um, one thing I like to do on the show is, you know, in the beginning, we kind of want to take it back to where you kind of started, um, you know, pretty much to how do you get your start. So did you go to college? I did go to college. I did not finish college. All right. All right, so you didn't finish college. Um, so, but while you were in college, did you study anything that had to do with um, where you found your success? Uh, yes and no. So my major was slash is psychology. And so, you know, psychology is part of all business, right? Understanding how people, why people react to certain things, um, the marketing aspect, the discipline that you have within yourself. So um, I would say indirectly, I definitely um, benefit from the psychology education, but I did also take courses in marketing, courses in management, uh, management of people, those kind of things. So I um, I like to think so. <laughs> no, that that's pretty dope, yeah, because um, I I have a master's in disability services, but I have like a concentration in like um, behavioral, you know, behavioral, you know, things like that. So that's one thing that I have to figure out, you know, when I, you know, within that was pretty much why do people behave the way they behave? Like what's causing it? Right. So, and I've right. been able to use that with my vending business as far as figuring out where I want to place card readers and why it won't be smart to place card readers there or what kind of products, you know, people will like in this situation, that situation, well, who will use, you know, cash, like things like that, you know, I'm able to kind of break down why these, you know, the customers do what they do. So I definitely understand right. what you're saying with that. Um, so now um, we, we spoke, you know, previously before the podcast, you said that you are, you know, you specialize in teaching people financial literacy. Right. So to you, you know, because everybody talks about financial literacy, but you're someone who, you know, really does, from what I'm seeing well with teaching people that. So to you, what is financial literacy? Uh, so <clears throat> I'm taking a step back, too, because financial literacy is definitely a priority and it's definitely something that I promote. But I think if I can uh, classify myself as having a niche within a niche, and that there's a bunch of people 
that, that we all interact with, right, who are in the financial education space, space or financial literacy space, and we're talking about different ways to go about building wealth, whether that be, like you said, vending or real estate or stocks or, you know, anything else. But um, where I like to focus is financial empowerment. And so I think it's kind of like the precursor to financial literacy, specifically for um, Black people and minorities, because you know, you can have all the skill and knowledge in the world around how to run a business and um, how to trade in the stock market and, you know, how to invest in real estate. But if you don't have the mindset to believe, first of all, you know, I'm capable of doing this. Second of all, this is what I'm going to do to get there. Then it's all for, for nothing, I think. You know, it's it's like reading through a book and not executing. So the academics um, aspect of financial literacy I wholeheartedly believe is important. But for me, I like to focus on mindset, discipline, behavior. So it's kind of like what we were just talking about with the psychology, understanding why people are experiencing anxiety around um, managing their own finances, why people um, don't want to, for instance, get credit or improve their credit, why people have a hard time saving, but they don't have a hard time spending. Or why is there a pull, right, to this consumerism where we're um, buying things that will rapidly depreciate? And so addressing those as kind of like a root cause and then layering on top of it the financial literacy where we're talking about paying yourself first and, you know, trying to establish multiple streams of income and spending less than what you're saving all of those practices become a lot easier because now you have a goal, you have kind of like a frame of reference. Like, all right, here I am. That's where I want to be. This is the roadmap to getting there. And so what I find a lot of people will touch on the financial empowerment piece briefly because they're not struggling with financial empowerment. They are empowered. Um, but the disconnect with the audiences who I think um, romanticize this journey as whether it be entrepreneur, business owner, or, you know, just somebody who works a nine to five, but puts their money to work um, is because they don't believe or have the confidence in themselves to take action. And so I think that that, you know, sometimes is a byproduct of um, the work that we do with the literacy, right? Because if you know how to do it, then you might feel a little bit more comfortable approaching it. But if you are in a place like solid, where it's like, okay, this is what I want to accomplish. This is how I'm going to accomplish it. I believe that this is possible. This is the dollar amount that I need to be successful or that, you know, I, I feel like I'll, ex I'll experience my financial freedom with. Now I'm ready to go, you know, guns blazing with the, you know, real estate, stock market investing, business, vending, whatever. Mm, I love it. I love it. Especially the financial empowerment because I, I actually – haven't heard that term before. You know, you always say financially free, financial literacy, but never financial empowerment. So that's that's pretty dope. So as far as the route you've taken to help people with financial empowerment, financial literacy, what kind of led you to that specifically? Um, it's been a successful journey because I started – and, and I've told this story a million times, but it, it kind of changes every so often. 
Um, so I started in banking at 21 years old. And I really, I think that that's kind of like, that's what kicked it off. Because when I was, you know, in that world, being in that world, you have to learn about products, you have to learn about services, you engage with different people who are at different points in their um, wealth building or not wealth building. So you see the behaviors, and you kind of learn all of that by osmosis. Um, however, in that process, I also read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I, you know, I attribute to changing my life. I tell people all the time, like, that book changed my life. It changed my perspective, my viewpoint on what it meant to be um, an entrepreneur, a business owner, an investor, um, not just kind of running in this rat race into nine to five. But also, I think a lot of my upbringing influenced my passion behind it, right? So you you have this charge to go out and learn and teach about financial literacy or empower other people financially, but where are you getting those steam from? And so um, I grew up poor. I grew up in, in poverty-like conditions. Um, my mom had Section 8. My mom had food stamps. And um, there were behaviors that we had to exhibit in survival that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, and so in talking about that experience, people are like, okay, like he experienced that, but look at where he is today. And I think that that gives me credibility um, in, in a couple of ways. First off, proof of concept, right? Because I, I pulled myself out of that situation um, mentally. And then, you know, of course, physically, but also um, in that, you know, my journey is not over yet. So I'm not, you know, Grant Cardone or Dave Ramsey or uh, Robert Kiyosaki coming to you as a multimillionaire saying, hey, guys, I'm a millionaire and this is how you can become a millionaire, too. I'm coming to you as, you know, this is my journey. This is where I started. And let me share with you the wins that I accomplish as, you know, time progresses. And I think that that's so important because representation matters um, and representation, not just from the perspective of being a black man, but from the perspective of, of being younger, right? So you don't have to be 30, 40, 50 to start exhibiting these behaviors. Um, and, and especially now in, in, in the times that we live in, I think that all the positivity that we can kind of showcase and, and demonstrate is important. And what you what you just said was so amazing and so relatable um, because I have, um, you know, kind of a big following. And one of the things that people love about me is what you just said, is that I didn't come to them as somebody who was overly successful and a millionaire you know they they saw my business they 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 was interested in it they want to learn how to do it but they also have seen me grow in real time so they're following this while this happened which allows them to kind of buy in and really learn from me because they seen you know it happened and you know like i said they seen it happen in real time they're seeing like okay you know he really did do this you know he really did do that um, I had a goal that I wanted to do this, and then they saw me, you know, achieve that goal. So I think what you're saying is so true. Um, and I think that's for, from the community that we come from, 
that's kind of important because people need to see it to believe it. And yep. if they if they don't, then they're just gonna think it's so far from being able to obtain. You know, if if you see Grant Cardone and and you know Gary V, all these kind of guys, you see them like, man, they got you know they saying all of this stuff, but look at them, they millionaires. But they get to watch mm-hmm. us really work towards it and be able to say, hey, man, like, if he can do it, I know he can do it. And I never take that as disrespect. I actually want it to be that way. I want someone to look at me and say, this guy is in the mastermind. This guy is in the guru. He's a regular person doing these things to make money. Like, I can emulate that. And I feel like if people see that and keep doing that, then we can get more people from our community to be able to be successful, which will allow us to give back to the community more and more. So I love what you said because it's so relatable. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's funny because I, I reflect on it frequently and, you know, like you said, and, and you're, you're a really good example too, proof of concept with that, because I've, I've one of those people who have watched your following grow over time. Like I remember when I had first, I think I first heard about you on a podcast and um, just to see how how quickly your the numbers went in terms of your following, and I was like, man. And then um, you know, following your your course, I didn't um, participate in purchasing the course yet, but seeing how engaged your following is around your course, and um, it's true, it's, it's true. But I think you know, like I was saying, one of the things that I think about frequently is what happens when we do make it and whatever making it looks like, right? We are the millionaires, multimillionaires, and then, you know, we're still delivering content. Our content is gonna have to change because now we are the millionaires speaking to a generation or speaking to a group of people who, you know, haven't followed our journey. And so they're like, oh, well, you're just, you're just another one of them. So, you know, that's, that's been my pondering and, and, you know, maybe that's, put in the cart before the horse in, in some respects, right? Because we're not there yet. But also just thinking too about long-term engagement with the audiences that follow you and what that means for people that are coming up afterwards. Because we have, you know, this whole generation Z who, you know, there was some concern about in the beginning. <laughs> but now like they're doing things to change the world. Like they're um, really kind of standing up to systems and beliefs and um, kind of charting their own path. And, and, you know, this generation is a generation that grew up on the internet, you know, with the internet, like they've never known a time before the internet. And um, so they have so much information at their fingertips, but also the potential to um, share that information very quickly. And so you see all of these instances of you know, viral news, whether it's like, you know, um, official like media or just, uh, you know, a viral video. And so in sharing what we share, right, financial literacy, financial empowerment, and getting that audience engaged in that content, of course, you're going to see growth because people are going to start sharing it like rapidly, rapidly, rapidly. And so how do you keep that audience engaged? And, and and that audience is not a part of uh, my target audience when I think about the demographics. Um, my audience is a little bit older. I think my audience is more um, geared towards like millennials who are, who are coming into kind of that seasoned um, 
point in their life where they've worked a little bit, they have a little bit of experience, they have some steady income, they've made some mistakes and they're looking to recover. But, um, you know, I, I, I just, I, I'm throwing it out there for you too, because I'm sure this is a bridge that you're going to have to cross at some point too. Um, you know, thinking about what does engagement look like for that Gen Z group who, you know, really they should be growing up on this too. They should be growing up understanding financial literacy and financial empowerment and, you know, taking action much sooner than we all did. Man, that's, that's, that's so real, man. And I never, I never thought about that. Um, because I'm been in the in the moment and time of you know really trying to grow and do this and do that, but I never thought about that. And which, and that's something wild to me because I'm always thinking ahead. Um, even the things that I do as far as business, it's like okay, this happens or that happens. How can I plan for this? But that part I never thought about, and it's it's so real. Wow, that's oh, that's yeah. yeah, that's that's something, man. We we definitely gotta um talk after the podcast man because uh, <laughs> yeah no seriously man like i'm i'm loving what you have to say man and i i really can't wait for people to hear this because you you got me sitting here just thinking like wow you know 100% correct wow man so you know you're your author also and your you know your books how many books have you written two so i've two published um i have i have two ideas floating around I um <clears throat> I haven't really pulled I've pulled the trigger and started to write them, but I'm a while a while away from publishing them. Hmm. So what um what are the two books that you have written and published so far? My first book I published in 2018 called Mentorship the Playbook. That book was um you know obviously my my first go at at authoring. So uh. The style is going to be a little bit different than my second book. I think a little bit more immature, just because you know I'm testing the water here. But I use my experiences to engage with an audience, primarily young men, um, around what mentorship should look like or what best mentorship practices look like. And so I speak in the voice of you know a mentor, but also in the voice of a mentee, and saying that you know as a mentor, this is what your responsibility is. This is how you maximize the relationship with your mentee. But as a mentee, this is what your responsibility is. Because I think very often people, um, especially people who, who serve in a mentorship role, are placed with the burden of kind of leading that relationship or guiding that relationship. And the mentee just kind of goes along for the ride. There's no real accountability on the mentee's part to ask for what they need or, you know, to really even know what it is that they need. And so I kind of provide a framework for what that relationship looks like through the lens of the experiences that I've had and also redefining what mentorship looks like um, or, or how someone would define mentorship because most times when you think of a mentor, you think of somebody who's older than you or who's had a lot more experience than you in a particular area. And I challenge readers to view mentorship as anybody that you are giving um, an influence over your behavior, your thought, your actions. So that would include the group of friends, people that you spend the most time with. That would include, um, you know, anybody that you're quote unquote idolizing. Um, you're following their material, you're eating up everything that they put out there and then you're implementing in your own life. And so 
it's very possible that you can have mentors who you've never met. And especially, like I said, with this Gen Z generation, where, you know, the internet is at their fingertips, literally, they can go and jump on YouTube for hours or, you know, go on Instagram or, or Twitter and just follow the content that people are putting out there and implement. And I think that that's a mentorship relationship as well. Um, so that book, relative success with that, I didn't really understand the marketing um, of a book. I just kind of popped up and said, hey, everybody, like, I have a new book. And so I think there was the initial hype of like, wow, you wrote a book and a lot of support from people that I knew and, you know, maybe third degree connections. So people who knew people that I knew, but not a huge turnout. Second book I published last year, 2019, um, and that's called Financially Irresponsible. That was more um, the speed of what I think my audience was looking for from me because I had been um, associated with finances anyway. So they're just like, okay, like he finally he wrote a book on finance. And um, there was a lot of buildup um, leading to the, the publication. So I was kind of pe keeping my audience engaged and letting them know what the progress looked like, asking them for feedback around what imagery I use, um, and then just kind of talking about and testing content through the social medias, whether that be Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And so I, I might tell a piece of a story and see, you know, are people retweeting this? Are people liking this? Are people engaging with this? And um, one story in particular that I told was around how I, I got approved for a credit card um, and it was like less than $500. And I grew that credit card, that credit limit to $50,000. And people are like, what? Like, you know, how do you do this? So there's a lot of engagement around that. And I said, okay, I need to talk about this in the book. And But there was other things that I talked about too, like, you know, growing up on Section 8 and then, you know, buying my first house at 26. And so people are like, oh, like, that's cool. And, you know, of course, I, you know, it was a multifamily. So we're in the age of, you know, everybody's talking about real estate investing. So people are really engaged with that contest. All right, I need to talk about that too. So really just kind of testing the water and seeing what people are, are getting excited about and then, you know, creating a, a buyer persona, right? So who who is buying the book, but also who is reading the book? So a grandmother might buy the book, right? Because she thinks it's a good idea for her grandson or granddaughters to read, but the grandson and the granddaughter is going to be reading the book. So how do you market the book to both audiences where you're getting sales, but also you're getting people who are going to actually be an engaged reader. And so once I finished you know, writing the book and I had a whole team uh, involved with, with, you know, putting it together, very different from my first book where I did everything myself. Um, I was just like, all right, cool. Like this is solid material. Like people, I felt like I was going to change the world with this book. And really that was my intention. I, I, I drew a lot of inspiration from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, in that I wanted this book to have the same impact on a mind or on multiple minds that Rich Dad, Poor Dad had on me. And so um, it's been, I mean, I published it December 3rd of last year and it's been a nice journey. I've, um, I've definitely grown my audience considerably based off of just that book alone um but have been promoting it throughout so i think you know that's also important when you create something like 
a book or um you know a cd for any kind of you know musician out there or just any kind of product there's that initial buzz of the release and the marketing leading up to the release but then after that like how do you sustain sales for a long period of time especially if you're not somebody who's known you know like mm -hmm. michelle obama put out a book like her book is going to keep selling because she's michelle obama but you know somebody who is publishing independently and really building a brand for themselves how do you stay in the conversation how do you stay relevant and um so now you know i said december of last year we're in june of 2020 and you know i'm still seeing sales trickling in fact may was my highest volume month since the first month that i published and um and that's just you know that's testament to growth that's testament to you know continuing to talk about my product continue to reference it continuing to plug myself up, like not being ashamed of, in, you know, entering in the conversation like, oh, yeah, here's my book, posting the link regularly, just keeping it at the forefront, really, of the conversation. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's something that I, um, you know, have felt and in, in, in think about, you know, as far as, you know, the products that I sell um because i'm not gonna lie sometimes i'll be like all right this is probably about to run this course so um but you know people continue to be interested and i try to continue to feed them something and sometimes i talk about the same stuff because there's always new people and you know especially with social media and the whole algorithm kind of stuff you know you know that some people don't just see you see you um yep. post so I have to, I had to get comfortable with continuing to post and continue to talk about this thing. I'm like, man, people probably don't want to hear this no more, uh, which is not true, you know, because somebody might have seen you talk about it 10 times and mentally they weren't in that space those first 10 times. But that 11th time, they're like, you know what? I'm going to go buy this book because I think it can help me because they're now in yep. that space. So, yeah, I definitely, I definitely. Um, love that. So, but I just want to kind of piggyback off your the title of your book, which is financially irresponsible. Correct. Yep. Yep. So, just I mean, not to you know get too much into it, but in your experience, what is you know things that people do that are financially irresponsible? And and it's a kind of a two part question. And what is the ramifications of those actions? Good questions. Um, questions that I want to be asked <laughs> based off the title of the book. So I titled that book um, that way intentionally. And I worked with a consultant actually in the process of compiling that information. And it took us um, quite literally some weeks, maybe months to come up with a title before we even started writing. Because for me, it was important to um, know what the desired end result was before I started putting it together. And my desired end result was I wanted more um, exposure. I wanted people to be talking about me. I wanted to, you know, be involved with publications, be on TV, you know, grow my social media following. Like I wanted it all. And so, you know, we had to come up with something that was kind of edgy, something that was kind of controversial, something that, you know, people will be like, huh? And um, really the title, it, it has a dual purpose. One, in that, you know, again, controversial, making people kind of think twice. 
but two, in challenging people to examine what are considered um, best practices in personal finance and in managing of their personal finances. And um, so when I talk about financially irresponsible, some of the examples that I give in the book would be considered irresponsible by a traditionalist standard when it comes to uh, managing personal finances. And so, um, but even though I, I, they're considered um, irresponsible, they've landed me in the position that I'm in. So, you know, some people might call it luck, some people might call it strategic, um, but I'm careful too when I'm talking about personal finance to emphasize that personal finance is personal. And so what works for me as, you know, someone who's single, under 30, pretty much keeping a majority of my income um, is going to be different than somebody who is 45, has a spouse, has children, um, has bad credit, you know, digging themselves out of the hole that they, uh, you know, buried themselves in their 20s. And so understand that, you know, you might not be able to um, invest all of the extra income that you have into the stock market. It might be important for you to have six months, nine months, a year's worth of emergency cash on hand before you get into the investing world. But for me, I could do that. I could take that risk. And so I talk about that at that particular point in time in, in life. But then, you know, COVID happened. And I realized very quickly, like, oh, you know, not the best idea in the world not to have any cash on hand. And so I had to change my strategy, but I leave room for that and, and what that growth looks like. Because again, you know, what I was doing when I wrote the book, I was 29. Um, and then I just turned 30 in May. So like, it's just a year's difference, but we'll, we've also experienced the pandemic and, and I've experienced an increase in my salary and I've experienced, you know, additional streams of income. So like there's different variables that will dictate my behavior and how I adjust to that is based off of the principles that we build our theories and our practices off of in, um, in personal finance or financial literacy. You know, paying yourself first, saving as a discipline, spending less than you earn, those kind of things. So um, the answer to your question, and I know this is a very roundabout <laughs> answer, but the answer to your question, I think, it's irresponsible for people to let their finances exist in an autopilot state. You know, going to, you know, Dave Ramsey's website and reading what Dave Ramsey has to say and saying, oh, you know, I'm going to go follow Dave Ramsey's rules or going to Robert Kiyosaki or whoever, going to me and say, I'm just going to follow blindly this practice without doing any investigation or without really kind of lining up what your basics and your fundamentals are and then building on top of that based off of, you know, how you color your situation. Um, I think that that's so important when we look at those, you know, mega guru people who are going out there and they're giving the same information to everybody and not, and, you know, going back to the beginning of this conversation again, understanding who is your audience. My audience is millennials. Like I know that. And so when I'm talking to uh, Gen Z, about building credit and, and saving for um, retirement and buying property. And they're like, no, nah, I'm not like, that's, that's going over my head. Like I'm not even, I'm not even there yet. That doesn't mean anything to me. Or if I'm speaking to um, 
a boomer who, you know, they're, they're like in their sixties and they're like, you know, I need to build my credit. I need to, I need to come up with a business idea. And I'm not, and I'm not one to say that there's a time limit on what success looks like and what wealth building looks like. But I am going to be real in saying that what your strategy and your approach to doing that looks like is going to be very different than what someone who's in their 20s is going to look like or somebody who's in their 30s is going to look like or even somebody who's in their 40s is going to look like. And so leaving that room for flexibility. Um, classic example that I can give you is, you know, you go, you pay all this money to um, a financial advisor who is tied to a larger organization and they are giving you a strategy or blanket advice around um, how to move forward without really kind of taking into account what your situation is. You're paying them for the service. You're going to keep paying them for the service, regardless of if your money grows or, or shrinks. And, 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 and that's, that's it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not, it's, and, and, I, and <clears throat> I shouldn't, you know, put my foot in my mouth. I, I'm not a financial advisor. I've never got a license. I, um, I don't know what those conversations look like, you know, outside of what my experience is. But I had an experience with a financial advisor who I said, hey, I'm interested in opening up a brokerage account. He tried to sell me a managed plan where I'm paying annually, I think, like $200 for him to put me into a certain type of mutual fund based off of an assessment around my risk tolerance that he's done. And I'm like, yeah, no, I think I want to drive this bus. And I'm happy that I did that. I'm happy that I made that decision because everybody that I was talking to at that point in time in my life was telling me to get involved with some mutual funds, buy mutual funds, buy mutual funds. And I was looking into all of them. But it's just like, you know, fast forward, X number of years and in, in independent research, and I've learned that the management fees on a mutual fund are killing your bottom line. And, and most people don't have that conversation. Most financial advisors don't have that conversation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you cover all of this kind of, you know, as you cover all of this in your TED talks, correct? I don't. So my TED talk is very vague, um, and that's intentional because TED is is um, what's the word? They're pretty strict about self promotion um, or promoting an organization that you're affiliated with if there's not a need. Um, so what that need looks like is you have done independent research for uh, a large organization and the organization publishes that research. Well, then you can reference that organization because that information is like, you know, it's public information. It's not like, you know, that's, that's the source of the publication. Um, but when it comes to talking about, you know, like, for instance, I could not mention my book, which I was pretty disappointed about because um, it had just come out. I, I published my book the day before I delivered my TED Talk. Um, I could not talk about my nonprofit by name. I could mention the work that I'd done in the nonprofit. I could mention what the nonprofit was for, but I couldn't really get into detail. So no self-promotion. Um, and then also 
TED Talks are supposed to trigger thought or conversation around an idea. Um, so it's not, it can't be a motivational talk either. So for me, it was a challenge because I wanted to leverage my experience uh, growing up in poverty and talk about that so that I can build a connection with the audience. I wanted to emphasize the importance of financial education or financial literacy. And I wanted to leave with a call to action. So I was able to do that. Um, I, I touched on all, all of those topics, but I had to do it in a way that was, again, not self-promoting or not considered motivational, but really kind of leaving it as a talking point. So I talk about financial empowerment. Um, I talk about the uh, statistics, statistics in FINRA and um, Schwab that indicate, you know, what percentage of the population is financially literate and um, and what people believe about, you know, their dollar amount, what they need for retirement in order to survive. And then I go into really kind of establishing a call, um, call to action in that really closing the wealth gap and increasing financial literacy is going to happen based off of creating a team. And that team looks like, you know, different individuals who can share what it is that they know with you if you don't know, and you sharing what it is that you do know with other people who don't know. Um, and so I encourage everybody to join a team, either be the person that's teaching or be the person that's learning and then continuously pay it forward. So sharing what it is that you learn with other people. I talk about my team as um, being a lot of different financial professionals, whether that's a real estate agent or a lender or a financial advisor or a CPA, or you know just somebody who knows a lot about you know finance, personal finance. And then um, how I built my my own success around the details that that team had shared with me and you know our various interactions and how then I've taken what it is that I've learned based off of those interactions, and I share those with different people. Um, you know, people that I'm close to and people that I don't know. Um, you know, I'm constantly posting on social media about, you know, wins, big and small, loses, which I think is important because I think transparency is important and authenticity is important for me and just, you know, letting people know, like, I'm real, like I'm not gonna boost the numbers up. I'm not gonna just, you know, pretend that I'm living this great life and luxury and everything's wonderful and this is what it looks like because I want people to know like the real of what's going on and you know what you have to navigate in order to experience success and sustain the success. And I still consider myself to be very new and very young in this process. I think I have a ways to go and you know, there's different there's different ways to skin a cat, so to speak. Um, you know, I see a lot of people who are very successful in real estate. I see a lot of people who are very successful in the stock market. I see a few people who's very successful in both. Um, people pushing Forex, people pushing um, the cryptocurrencies, um, vending, uh, just so many different ways to do it. Affiliate sales, um, e-commerce, just, a lot of people out there killing it. And, you know, I, I think for me, I have my hands in so many different pots because I want to know a little bit about everything so that I can speak to a little bit about everything, maybe not as an expert, but certainly as somebody who's knowledgeable of its existence 
And um, I feel good about that. But, you know, when you are kind of like a jack of all trades, master of none, you know, I think that also slows up your progress too. And that, you know, you have to double down and really focus on a specific discipline so that, you know, you can see some massive growth. So I've been, I've been fortunate and, and I, you know, I take a lot of credit for it, but I also, I give a lot of credit to just positioning and my environment and the people that I've surrounded myself with and, you know, situations like I didn't have to end up working at a bank. The bank didn't have to call me back when I applied. And if they didn't call me back, I would not have been pressed about working in banking. It was completely accidental, but it was an accident that ended up impacting, you know, my life. And, you know, almost 10 years later, I'm still in, in, in financial services. I'm still in banking and, and I'm still learning every single day. So, um, you know, is that luck? You know, I, I don't think so. I think everything happens for a reason. And I think, you know, we, we follow this path, but we also kind of create our own path. And so, um, you know, that's the message really that I try to share when I talk about my experiences and these things and that, you know, really take some ownership of, of what your future can and does look like and what you do towards um, shaping that and, and making that a reality for you. I love it, man. I love it. Um, I love it, man. So, you know, before we, before we get out of here, uh, I got one question for you. Um, and it can be pretty vague. It doesn't have to be, you know, too, you know, detailed because it's, you know, your life, but what is financial freedom for you? That's a good question. Um, and it changes, I think, every day, uh, every experience shapes what that looks like. Um, there was a point in time where a million dollars seemed like a lot of money to me, and I was like, I just want to be a millionaire. And now <laughs> I'm realizing that a million dollars is not a lot of money, and I'm like, well, it would be pretty nice to be a billionaire. Um, but I think financial freedom for me is, is going to be similar to what financial freedom looks like for a lot of people, right? You don't have to clock in um to any job whether it be yours or somebody else's that you know you have systems in place where you're constantly getting paid and you are able to live the life that you want to live and and for me that doesn't look like luxury um certainly i can appreciate luxury uh, i think that i would take advantage of luxury given the opportunity um but for me that means being able to really maximize the impact that I can have on the world. And most people can't even begin to understand what their gift for the world is because, you know, they have their head down working from, from, you know, late teens to, you know, their sixties, seventies, you know, till death sometimes. And, and, and when you're spending so much of your day, so much of your life working, you know, with your head down, trying to, you know, just make a living, just trying to survive. You don't get to explore the talents that you have, the passions that you have. You don't get to give back in the way that you might have wanted to. And for me, that's important. So um, financial freedom for me is not working or not having to work for anybody. Um, if I decide to work for myself, then, you know, that's what I do. But I talked about co-founding a nonprofit. Financial freedom for me means seeing success with the nonprofit. 
um, being able to have that uh, really kind of just pop up. I, I would like to see the nonprofit grow beyond, you know, the region that I'm in currently. I would like to see my nonprofit become the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club with different charters across the country, maybe even the world. Um, because our focus, our aim is addressing homelessness as an issue. And, um, you know, once you start peeling back the layers of that onion, it's like, well, homelessness looks very different for a lot of different people and it impacts a lot of different demographics. So you're going to help this group. What about this group? What about this group? What about this group? How do you prevent the succession of homelessness from um, a particular demographic, let's say, you know, young children or children who are aging out of a foster system or something like that to um, to growing into homelessness as, you know, a veteran or an adult or somebody who is dependent on um, drugs or alcohol and, you know, just creating, breaking that up, creating barriers, but also addressing it in terms of the needs and the resources that you can provide to individuals who um, who are impacted by homelessness or who may be impacted by homelessness. So, um, again, I know long answer, but I think financial freedom for me allows for me to help other people. And that's something that I'm very passionate about. All right, man. I'm, uh, like I said, man, like everything you've been saying this whole podcast, man, I love it. Uh, I love the way you think. Um, I love how in-depth you get with everything. Um, I believe the listeners are going to walk away from this podcast. Um, I feel like they've, they've learned a lot. Um, so before we go, man, um, let's plug in your book, you know, plug in your social media, like where everyone can find you, your websites, anything like that. Yeah, so again, my name is Rakim Sabri. My website is my name, RakimSabri.com. My Instagram and Twitter handles are my name. And uh, I have a, a business Facebook account that is my name. So it, everything is Rakim Sabree. R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E. And um, the book is called Financially Irresponsible. That's available on Amazon. All right, man, listen, I appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I plan to, to get with you, man, hopefully be able to converse with you and um, learn some more from you because I really enjoyed this conversation. So again, thank you. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me and, and I look forward to it. All right, man. I'll talk to you later.